Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem as Jerusalem's king, and he comes in on a donkey. Now, I'll probably read that verse at some point in our talk today. Um, as a king, but lowly and humble, people recognize many that he's the Messiah, or they think he's the long-awaited Messiah, one who would come and bring Israel into a new exodus. Israel has a history of being like slaves under oppressive regimes, often exiled because of their sins. They're exiled to Babylon because of their sins, and they write about that, and you read the story, and they come back to their land. They're at the time of the first century, in a sense, in an exile in their own land because the Roman government, the Roman Empire, is you know, just marching through the world, basically, and they've marched over Palestine, and they are the occupying force. And there's a sense among many of the Israelites that a Messiah will come and he will raise up an army and overthrow Rome. And so they're kind of thinking maybe Jesus is that guy. He's been preaching. He's been healing sick people. He's been proclaiming that the promised kingdom of God has come. So he comes in and the people take palm branches and wave them in a, in a sign from something that's in the old um, the, the scriptures for the Israelite people, they lay them on the ground like a red carpet as he marches in, and so they call that Palm Sunday. And just to kind of follow up what's going to happen during the week, there's, there's discrepancies about what days everything happened. There are people that really care about, was it Wednesday or was it Thursday or was it Friday or was it Saturday when all these different things happen? The, the kind of tradition is, I'll just use that, that on Thursday night he gathered his disciples to celebrate Passover. There are reasons why that might not have been Thursday. doesn't matter to me right now. Um, to celebrate the Passover supper. And they had what we call the Last Supper. You've seen the picture where they're all on one side of the table and someone's leaning against Jesus. And you've seen the painting of the Last Supper. That's Thursday night and Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Venita, he washed their feet. And that's what you experience today, Jesus washing your feet. You know, and, and he takes them out uh, into a garden. On the way to the garden, he goes through a vineyard and talks about how um, he is like a vine, and we are like branches on the vine. You've read that in John 15. That's when it happens. And then he gets to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to be betrayed. And Judas, one of the disciples, comes and kisses him, and he says, friend, do what you've come to do. He's arrested Friday, there's, there's, he kind of stays up all night. He's arrested, and the disciples scatter, and he goes kind of to a, several trials, kangaroo trials, you might call them. He's at one point at the high priest's house, and by the morning, they take him to Pilate, the Roman governor that's in Judea, and it's preparation day for the Sabbath, the Bible says, so it could be Friday morning, and, and they, as you know, d demand that he be crucified. And Pilate struggles with that, the governor, and his wife has a dream and says, stay away from this man, I think there's something bad going to happen if you do this. But Pilate turns him over to the leaders of the Jewish people who then say, crucify him. They turn him back over to the Romans and they beat him and, and take him to a cross. And he carries a cross and he's nailed to the cross. And by Friday he's hanging on a cross dying. Normally that could take days, crucifixion. I may tell you a little bit more about them if you don't know, but crucifixion was a really horrible, horrible, shameful, designed to be fearful way to kill somebody so they wouldn't rebel against the Romans. So they, they give Jesus this common death of a criminal crucifixion. 
and everything changes because of that crucifixion. And then on Sunday morning, he rises from the grave. <laughs> like, and it's all of it's predicted in the, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament scriptures, I'm sorry. When I say the Old Testament, I mean the Hebrew scriptures. Later on in history, people divided the, the scriptures of the Bible into old and new, kind of divided where Jesus comes. So that's what I'm using that language for. So that's Palm Sunday, Holy Week it's called, and we're headed toward Thursday and Friday. We'll celebrate and remember Good Friday, what the cross means. We are in a series together talking about Easter and the new creation. That's the language, and we've used as a way to talk through these weeks, and this is the fourth week, themes from that song that we just sang. The song is cool because it gives an arch of history. Let me tell you this, if you didn't know, the Bible, one way to understand it is really simple, four chapters that go like this. Creation, God creates the world. That's the first verse of that song we sing. Fall, even though fall not like autumn, but fall like you fell down. Sin. Uh, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates humankind in his own image as his image bearer. And they are to be basically his regents, his vice regents, the ones to represent him and rule this earth in his name. He plants them in a garden. There's Adam and Eve, the first uh, human beings. And an evil force comes and lies to them and tempts them to disobey God the creator. And they do what everyone since them has done. They listen to the deceiver and they rebel against the good creator God and do things their own way. As We call that the fall. So the first chapter of the Bible, if you're doing it in four chapters, creation. The second chapter is the fall of mankind into sinfulness. And it turns the whole world into the chaos, much of what you see right now. There is violence and there is murder. The violence of Jesus being crucified would be a result of the fall. All of that picture of um, children being hurt, children sold into sex trafficking, we see that's part of the fall. But right away, the third chapter, the long chapter begins, it's called redemption. First chapter, creation. Second chapter, fall. Third chapter, redemption. God will redeem this planet. The highlight of that redemption that's... In, it's, it's hard to understand, but it's easy to understand. It's hard to understand to make it all make sense in your mind. It's easy to understand to believe it and receive it in your heart. This concept. God himself, who created this world, who loves this world and loves us, gets his hands dirty, joins us in our mess, literally becomes human himself, is born a baby, according to prophecies, comes and is born a baby, lives a life, and according to prophecies, dies a criminal's death, and says, this is the amazing part. This is the part that you wouldn't get, I wouldn't get if we saw a man hanging on a cross. We wouldn't know it unless it's revealed to us, and the scriptures reveal it, and Jesus reveals it from before, during, and after, that this event, God becoming man and dying on a cross, would take upon himself the weight, the full weight, the punishment, every evil dark thing that is consequent to the sinfulness of humanity and bear it on himself and bear it away. 
so that we could walk in freedom. The picture that some have drawn of that is of a, of a man with a family and one of his children is extremely allergic to bees. And they're driving in the car and a bee comes into the car and the child is terrified because if he gets stung, he could die. The father reaches out and grabs the bee and it's buzzing around in his hand until finally it stings his hand. And he says to his son, it's, it's okay, I've taken the sting. It's now in my hand. And the bee is rendered ineffective and you're safe. That's the picture of the Son of God coming and taking the sting of death. And the powers of hell are broken. That's the whole arch of the picture. Well, one of the song, one of the verses of that song, I'm sorry, I should do the end of the story. Creation, fall, redemption, all pointing to new creation when the entire cosmos will be recreated at last. And it will be as it was designed in the beginning. It started in the garden and the book of Revelation ends in a garden. Only heaven and earth are now come together as one. God living with humanity. And it's all made new and all sorrow and all mourning and all death and all struggle and all trial and all those horrible things that you and I see all the time on the news are washed away, and all is made right. That's the promise. And the reason we believe in that promise is because the one who made that promise says, you'll know it's true because I'm going to die, and then I'm going to beat death and rise from the dead. And when you see me resurrect, I will be the first fruits of the new creation that's coming. So have faith. I showed you. That's why Easter is so big to us. Did you get all that? That's, that's history in five minutes. So, the, with time, I'd love to read through that whole song again. I put it on the notes that you have. Did you see that you have a handout that looks like this? That may be useful. And, and you see the, where it says verse 5 on the front of that handout. Oh Lord, you've made yourself a home, heaven, and earth forever one. That's the picture of new creation. That's where we're going in this series. All things once sown in weakness you raise and promise. That's the theme we're working from today. Things sown in weakness, or I'm calling it power in weakness, or the power of weakness. We call it strength in weakness. All those would work. This interesting concept that in God's kingdom, and the way he rules and reigns, things are an upside-down kingdom to us. Have you ever heard that phrase, the upside-down kingdom? Oh, so that's the way some people talk about the kingdom of God. It's an interesting kingdom where the one who is the king who conquers does it by getting killed. It's very upside down, right? It's an interesting kingdom where the greatest in the kingdom are those who are servants of all. Upside down king. It's an interesting kingdom where those who mourn are blessed, actually, because in the kingdom they're comforted. Upside down kingdom. So, in this upside down kingdom, weakness is actually... Powerful, and I just mentioned the story of Jesus, how in ultimate weakness, giving yourself up to be killed by crucifixion, you actually conquer the powers of darkness. So all things once sown in weakness, you raise in promise. And uh, that's actually, it's not where we're going today, but just for you that are kind of Bible students, if you care, that comes from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is teaching about the coming resurrection, and he says, you know, when you, when you plant a seed in the ground, it's going to basically die first, and then a 
crop is going to be produced that looks nothing like the seed. You know, a maple tree doesn't look like an acorn. A maple tree. And what, who's on maple? maples? Is that the right one? Oak, thank you. That's what I wanted. Brain. Oak tree, thank you. I need help. We're all over this place. Anyway, you plant a seed. What's planted doesn't look like what comes up, right? And, and 1 Corinthians 15 says, we are kind of like that. We're planted our body, this body, weakened, will die and be buried. But God will cause it to be resurrected in the new creation into a glorious new living creation. All things went sown in weakness, you raise in promise. That's just one example of this principle. So we're going to talk through that principle largely. Uh, I think probably one of the, the best illustrations, and this is also not in the notes I just gave you, um, but I was reading it this morning and going, that's a really good example of weakness and strength. Weakness is strength, the power of weakness for strength. So the night, Thursday night this week, when Jesus is in the garden and the people arrest him, one of his men pulls out a sword and and he apparently doesn't have very good aim. He goes to try to probably knock a guy's head off, but ends up taking just his ear. Remember that story? And, and Jesus, um, so funny, he says, put your sword away, picks up the ear off the ground. I imagine the guy's going, ah, he's screaming, and Jesus glues it back onto his head and heals him. It's awesome. Heals him. And he says this. This is Matthew um, 26. Verse 53, if you're the note-taker type. He says, don't you know if I wanted to, I could call on my father and he'd send me 12 legions of angels to fight for me. A legion is 6,000 Roman soldiers. He'll send me 72,000 fighting angels. I think it'd be okay. But I'm choosing weakness. So it, the way I'm thinking of this concept of weakness is when you and I choose, or in some cases are forced... <laughs> To not use our own strength to accomplish God's purposes. But we follow God's ways, his paths, in obedience to him. We become weak, and he's glorified, and he's strong. So Jesus says, I can have 72,000 angels right now, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let them arrest me. And I'm going to accomplish God's purposes because this, he's speaking as a human. He's both man and God as a human the destiny God has for me is to be crucified right now. And I'm going to let myself be that way. And God will be glorified. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so let's see what we can learn here. The first idea is that in God's kingdom, let me stop. What does he mean by God's kingdom? What was that about? God's kingdom means God ruling and reigning. It's when God gets his way, it's his kingdom being expressed. You have a kingdom. Your kingdom is when what you will gets done. You have a kingdom. You were designed that way, so you should be able to understand this. You have the ability to cause things that you want to happen to some degree in your life. You probably today, in your kingdom, cause there to be food going into your mouth for lunch. Right? And if you've had children, you know that they have a kingdom and they're going to fight their kingdom against your kingdom as soon as they can. <laughs> right? And there's a war. 
So God's kingdom means where he's ruling and reigning, where what he wants done is done. Okay, that's one way to think of the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, our weakness is actually our strength. And a scripture to teach this to us, one of many, comes from Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I should pause there and tell you, you know, the, my favorite verse, I think, that I always talk about is the Old Testament prophecies, especially Habakkuk, where it says, the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Look what I just read. He's given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's that phrase, in the face of Christ. But, here's the weakness. We have this treasure what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The glory of the creator, this, this treasure, this, this great brilliant light. We have it in jars of clay. We don't have it in golden vessels or silver bowls or a, a beautiful you know, safe maybe where you put a treasure. Um, we have it in these earthen jars that are cracked, most of us. Why? So that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And those of you who don't know the story of Gideon, remember Gideon's army? Where God uses Gideon to defeat a really vicious enemy that's been robbing, stealing, pillaging, destroying all of the, the, the stuff of the Israelite people. God raises up this man named Gideon and uses them to defeat uh, an army that's, that's like countless. Um, and the way they do it according to God's leadership is he, first they narrow down the army to 300 people and they're going to be fighting, I don't know, Tens of thousands, so it's absurd to begin with. And they get on this hill around where this army's camped out in the middle of the night, and they take jars of clay and put a light in them. I think Paul's probably thinking of that picture. They have these jars of clay, put a light in them, and he goes, when I say so, follow my lead, break open your jar, and shout, for Gideon and the Lord. They shout like that. What is it? You want to correct me? What does it say? I think the words are the name of Gideon and the name of the Lord. But in any case, maybe I'm wrong because I don't have it memorized. Judges chapter 6 and 7 for you, if I remember right. The sword of the Lord and Gideon. Thank you. Something along those lines. The point is the jar, the clay that breaks and the lights in it. They shout. And boy, this is a tough crowd. And, but I like it. You guys care about the Bible. Good for you. You got me? You got me? Thank you. Thank you, Bob. And um, then God works and throws the army of Midian into disarray, and they, they fall on each other and kill each other. And thousands of people are destroyed. The army's wiped out. And the Israelites are probably going, what just happened? <laughs> what? Here's what happened. You have this treasure of the light of God in earthen vessels that are weak and cracked, sometimes more cracked than others. It's a great picture. So another picture, 2 Corinthians, another letter to the church at Corinth. Paul writes that he's, he's just writing to them about these great revelations he's had from God. And he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there's given to me a thorn in my flesh. Um, probably each of us have something that we might call a thorn in my flesh. Hopefully you don't think of your spouse as a thorn in your flesh, but I've heard. Anyway, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient 
For you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There's the power in weakness. Therefore, Paul says this crazy thing, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. How many of you like being weak? You do? Good for you, Keith. For me, I don't like being weak. Yesterday, as Brian was talking about, we, we went out with our friends from Calvary Chapel to give away the Jesus Film DVD and invite people, and I was ready to go. I went to our men's breakfast beforehand. How can I do this short? Um, I have somewhat of a disability because, of, um, because a year ago this week, most of you know this, so I'm sorry to bore you that know, but a year ago this week, on April 20th, um, I developed a tear in one of my vertebral arteries that caused a spray of clots to go into my brain, and I had three strokes at the same time, and had a major healing. And just wonderful, but not a complete healing. I still have a thorn in my side, and what happens is when I need to rest more, I begin having symptoms that are not unlike having a stroke at the beginning. So I, that's why I'm sitting down right now. I'm weak. So I'm getting ready to lead the troops yesterday. And I'm at worshiping with the instinct and I'm having all these things. And I know that the doctor said, when this happens, you need to lie down and rest. I'm like, Lord. Seriously, I'm preaching about weakness. Had <laughs> a rough week of weakness. And I, I don't get to go lead the troops, do I? I get to go lie down. And that's what I did. Isn't that ironic? It's just the way it is. Because God's power is perfected in weakness. So I could rejoice if I wanted to. <laughs> like, seriously? Okay. <laughs> Jesus is our example, though. And he showed us how God's strength is perfected by choosing weakness. Remember, I'm saying... The weakness is when we choose or sometimes are forced to <laughs> not do things in our strength, but do things the way God says, which may have none of our strength involved. Because his glory is in chars of clay. Are any of you relating to that picture yet? Oh, good. Then we're right, the right crowd. Well, here's a couple. Jesus said he was gentle and humble of heart. That doesn't sound very strong and powerful and commanding. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. That's what I need. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle. This is how I am. I'm gentle. I'm humble. You'll find rest for your souls when you take my yoke upon you and learn from me that I am gentle and humble. And if you follow my way, you'll find rest. So follow my way, you'll find rest, and I'll get the glory, and my purposes will still be accomplished. Isn't that awesome? So I mentioned... Now I'll read from Matthew 21, the, the triumphal entry, we call it, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. The Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus sent two disciples, go to the village ahead of you at once, you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything, tell them the Lord needs them, he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill the prophecy. I think this is Zechariah that Kent mentioned, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle riding on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. A conquering king, you could expect to come in on a war horse. He's about to come in and conquer not only the powers of Rome, but the powers behind the powers of Rome. He's going to defeat all the powers that are behind every evil power. So that's the next point. Jesus conquers all the powers of darkness and destroys the power of sin. 
in the ultimate display of weakness, death by a crucifixion. There's a lot in that sentence. Can I just say this? I mentioned Adam and Eve and all of us turning away from God. Here's what happens. You and I were created to represent God to this planet as his image bearers. We were created in the image of God, called to worship him. But all of us end up worshiping other gods. And you go, well, I'm an American. I don't believe in that worshiping God's things. I don't have any idols. How about, let's start with a few. Money, sex, and power. Those are the big three for most people. Money, sex, and power, we have made in our culture, and probably every one of us individually, to some degree or another, we've made them little gods. If you don't like those, how about the pride of your image? How about this god that seems to get a lot of us, avoidance of pain by medicating with something? Alcohol, drugs, workaholism, many others. So those are all gods. And here's what happens. When we worship other gods, they start to give us something that feels good so we keep worshiping and then they switch it on us and they become a master and we become slaves. Do you understand that? Is what you've done and what I've done, that's the picture of the Bible from the old to the new, from the people of Israel to the people that are Gentiles like you, most of us in this room, not all of us, but the non-Jewish people. We make other gods gods. They become masters. Those are, there's evil powers behind them, demonic forces in the world. Jesus on the cross, dying a criminal's death, conquered all of those powers, like I said before. That's amazing, but he did it in weakness. Made me stand right up, didn't it? Here's one scripture. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. The powers and authorities. How? He triumphed over them by the cross. You guys, you do not understand because you're Americans. I don't understand, but I've read a little bit and I can feel it a little bit by learning that in the first century, the crucifixion, the cross, was such a vile thing that Roman citizens would not say the word in public. It was that wicked. It was designed to bring shame. Oh, you want to be lifted high, you rebel? We'll lift you high. We'll nail you to some wood. And it was so common that thousands and thousands of people were lined up on the roads, hanging on crosses, dying. Their corpses, I don't want to be gross, but the truth is, were rotting. Birds were eating the flesh. It stunk. It was scary. Probably all of the disciples at some point in their life were somewhere where they saw crosses of criminals being crucified in their life. It's as if we had an occupying force in Oceanside and anyone that dared fight against them or gather some people that fight against them are hung on a cross on Coast Highway for everyone to see. That's what they had. And I just read that Jesus disarmed the powers on the cross Triumphing over them by that cross. That's the mystery of the cross. It's the ultimate, ultimate weakness there can be. First Peter, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that he might, we might die to sins and live for righteousness. 
That's the power of the cross. And the promise is that you and I will look to that cross in faith. That the Son of God bore on Himself the penalty of all of our sins. It will go into Him and not to us and we will be set free from the powers of darkness and the power of sin so that we can live right before God no longer under the powers of all those false gods. Isn't that that awesome? If you didn't know that, now you do. You can answer the question, why is the cross such a big deal? Because of that. Powerful. God chose what the world considers foolish and weak to demonstrate his wisdom and power. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. I wasn't sent to baptize all you. I was sent to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, my strength, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message that I just said to you made no sense to any Roman citizen. And it was scandalous to tell a Jewish person that your Messiah was killed on a Roman cross. That made no sense. It was foolishness. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God through the world, of, of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles, but those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. The message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Now listen for you and me, brothers, sisters. Think of what you were when you were called by God. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. That's the picture of the church of Jesus Christ. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Oh, that's you. Did I just call you a fool? Kind of. Me too. He called you, the foolish, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things. Are you weak? Are you a jar of clay to shame the strong? Think of what Nelson Mandela did to turn around South Africa. He had before him two choices. Oh, I hope you know your history a little bit. Black man in South Africa where apartheid ruled and racism was in the system. And they finally have a free election. He spent 27 years or so in prison. He's finally free. He gets elected in a free election. He's the first black president. And he has before him the option to come back and get those bad white people. And he chooses forgiveness. The wisdom and the power of the weak. Forgiveness is the power that destroys apartheid and reunites a nation. And the stories go on and on. He chose the lowly things of the world, despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that, I'm in verse 29 now, so that no one may boast before him. 
It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Three fast points. Look at the time, because I want to do communion. Oh, Ron, land this ship. One. This truth of strength and weakness impacts my life. One, because I know that I can be included in God's great mission. My weakness, my foolishness cannot disqualify me. God qualifies me. That good news. So don't tell me I'm not smart enough. I'll say, you're perfect for the job. (laughs) I'm not strong enough. Good, you're perfect for the job. Number two, oh, I don't like this part. The weak and vulnerable parts of my life are where God can do his deepest and most profound work. Where my jar of clay is the most cracked is probably where God wants to be glorified the most. Think about your weakest, most vulnerable part of your life. Good chance that that's exactly the pace God wants to glorify himself. Oh, that's shameful to me. I don't want anyone to know. Well, that's probably where God wants to work in your life and glorify himself and set others free. That could be a whole sermon. Number three. Yeah. Number three, because of these truths, it's my calling, it's my responsibility, it's my honor to welcome broken and weak people if I want to stay in the flow of God's redemptive purposes. Because God loves the weak and broken. And his glory is revealed in the weak and broken. 